Hey, Steminists, it's Emlyn Gremlin here with a quick announcement. You are currently listening to an older episode of Stem Fatal, one in which we had not quite figured out how to turn the microphone on. So if the audio quality bothers you, I urge you to skip ahead to episode 17, where we are oh so crisp and oh so clean. That wasn't supposed to rhyme, but it just worked out that way. Okay, here's the app. By circa 5 p.m. on a Monday, so... It's a Tuesday. (laughs) Even worse. Um, Okay. Yeah, tell me about it. I have an intro question for you. Great. To start this off. I'm very unqualified for everything I'm going to say for the next while. Then I'm definitely unqualified. Okay, my question. Say we make contact with some planet way, way out in space and find that there is intelligent life there. Ooh, Say we want to give them instructions to build something. Pick pick something that you might want aliens to build. A swimming pool. Okay. So say we want to give them instructions to build a swimming pool. And apparently in order to build a swimming pool, you have to know what is left and what is right. Okay. Because it's a fancy swimming pool. Yeah. For some reason. Like a bean-shaped pool. Yes. But only <laughs> specifically a right-leaning bean-shaped pool. Okay. How would you describe what left and right means without having any object in common between the two worlds that you can refer to? I guess, is this getting at, like, the left-right in the antimer thing in chemistry? No. Kind of. Okay. Yes, it is getting at, well, it is getting at left-right. Yeah, well, I guess <laughs> that part that you already asked about. Um, but yeah, it's very similar. Hmm. Without having an object. Yeah, so you can't say, look at Neptune. Yeah. And then Uranus, and it's... <laughs> I guess... At Uranus. Yeah, I don't know, because they wouldn't know how to read an arrow or a direction signal. I don't even know how to communicate with aliens. That's true. So. <laughs> Given that you could <laughs> communicate with aliens. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. 
So this is called the Ozma problem. Whoa. Uh, named after Project Ozma, which tried to find signals of life on another planet. And that was referring to Oz because Oz is this unknown kind oh, of location. Like the Wizard other world. of Oz. Yes, where it's yeah. Wizard of Oz. Is this related to Zardoz? <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, it is not. Okay. <laughs> so, um, an experiment done by the woman I'm going to talk about helped solve the Ozma problem and gave us an answer of how to tell aliens. How do you spell that? O-Z-M-A. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Okay. Wow, I've never even heard of that. It's, I don't, yeah, I don't know if it's, it's kind of just a thought experiment, but yeah, kind of. Yeah, I like it. Yeah. Nice. So, uh, Qian Cheng Wu was born in 1912 in a small town near Shanghai, where she attended a school started by her father who believed in female education, which Aww. wasn't a big, wasn't a common belief at the time. Good for him. And then she went on to study math and then physics at the National Central University, now known as uh, Nanjing University in Shanghai. I'm kind of skipping over a lot of her childhood because it's going to take me a long time to explain some other things. Okay, yeah, <laughs> so, cool. So she got her degrees in math and then fit, or she got a degree in physics. And after receiving her bachelor's in 1934, she became a research assistant. And her supervisor then suggested that she get her PhD in America, like her supervisor had. Wow. She got accepted into the University of Michigan and then flew to America. Oh my gosh. Which has got to be quite a change. Shock. Yeah. yeah. Wow. However, before she started at Michigan, she toured UC Berkeley and then decided, no, no, I just want to go here. <laughs> and part of the reason was that UC Berkeley was much more women-friendly at the time. Yeah. And apparently, I only found this in one source, so I don't know if this is true, but apparently at U- University of Michigan at the time... Women couldn't enter through the front door for things. What? So that was probably in the 30s? Yeah. So it was 34. Oh my gosh. So she decided to go to UC Berkeley. Well, the weather is definitely nicer. It's also nicer. (laughs) um, But she decided it would be a better place to go to grad school, partially because it was more inclusive to women. So at Berkeley, she studied with physicists such as Robert Oppenheimer and the future Nobel Prize winners, Ernest Lawrence and Emilio Segre. And she received her PhD in 1940. And her mentor was Ernest Lawrence, who invented the cyclotron particle accelerator. Do you know anything about <laughs> the cyclotron particle accelerator? Uh-uh. No? Okay. No. It was the largest and most powerful. So he was in charge of the most lar- the largest and most powerful cyclotron at the time. And a cyclotron is a big machine that accelerates charged particles from the center uh-huh. outside in some type of spiral trajectory using a combination of electric and magnetic fields. So I think you can like bombard things and you can get, okay. you can accelerate particles to, you know, increase maybe the number of protons or neutrons or electrons in an atom. You can change that. Do you know, like, why you would do that? I guess just to study how molecules interact or how particles interact or something? I think you can use it for, like, all of physics. (laughs) Can I tell you more about that? Not really. Okay. Um, But you'll see kind of why you might want to use a cyclotron to add particles together. Like, yeah, yeah, we'll get to it. Like fusion? Yes. Okay. Like fission. 
Yeah. Yeah. Her PhD, as soon as you ask any questions, my face of knowledge is just going to, like, crumble. Uh, I'm not judging you. Okay, good, good. So her PhD was on beta decay and the projection of radioactive isotopes of xenon produced by nuclear fission of uranium. So we'll get to that. okay. We'll get to both of those things a little bit more uh, in a little bit. So after graduation, Wu married uh, Lu Quan, uh, who was another physicist, graduate student physicist. And at this time, it was World War II. And she was not able to return home to China during that time. Oh, okay. And at insult to injury, there was also strong anti-Asian sentiment, especially in the West. And so Berkeley refused to employ foreigners at all. So she lost her job. I never knew that was part of the puzzle. Yeah. That's sad. Yeah, so she couldn't go home, and then she couldn't work at Berkeley anymore, so her and her husband moved to the East Coast, and Wu temporarily worked at Smith College, uh, but most women's colleges at the time lacked sufficient research facilities, so she couldn't do her research, which required, you know, big... Yeah, probably expensive... Experimental physics requires, like, huge amounts of money to test anything. like, billion-dollar lasers these days. Yes, (laughs) yes. So her advisor, Ernest Lawrence, who I think at this time had a uh, Nobel Prize, wow. recommended her to a few different universities in the East Coast, and I'm sure he had quite a bit of clout. Yeah, that's nice. And she was offered a research position at Princeton University. Oh my god! And I think she was also a lecturer, so she, she taught some. And this was at a time before women were even allowed to attend Princeton. <gasps> I wonder what the student, if the students respected her or not. Yeah, I don't know. I didn't look up. I mean, you would. I, there's probably not reports on how her students felt. No, her, she had a nickname at well, where she started teaching next. But like, I don't. Oh gosh, it's I'm not worried. super friendly, so I didn't really okay. include it. She was a hard ass. Okay, nice. And <laughs> yeah, as World War II raged on, anti-Asian and sexist biases were overcome by the urgency of the war. And in 1944, Wu was recruited to Columbia University to work in the Manhattan Project. Whoa. Is that the bomb? Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Just checking. Yes. Okay, so a bit of background about the Manhattan Project. So the Manhattan Project was a secret venture during World War II whose sole purpose was to create an atomic bomb. So, like, I thought I it was... go back in time <laughs> and make anything not happen. Yeah. So... I didn't realize there was, like, 12,000 people working on the Manhattan Project. Oh, I didn't know that either. I, I For some reason, I thought it was a much smaller, like, very secret and so needed to be. But it makes sense. Like, you yeah. can't... You need a lot of people to build something like that. I also feel like there's one guy credited with making the atomic bomb or something. Mm. Or maybe it's... I'm thinking of the guy who dropped the atomic bomb and how much he regrets that... I think there's a lot of like, people that <laughs> regret. Yeah. Well, I didn't realize Einstein, so in, I, uh, I did not write this down, but in Germany, some German scientists had shown that they could enrich uh, uranium. They had done some part yeah. of the process of making a nuclear explosion. Oh my and Einstein had heard about this and had written to the United States and been like, you need to get on this to research it and start figuring out before the Germans do. Wow. And I didn't realize he had anything to do with it. Yeah, I didn't know But that he, he wasn't involved. They, like, 
he did not get security clearance. He was not allowed to help out because he was so liberal that they thought he was a security <laughs> risk. <laughs> so, like, oh, wow. they took his advice. Yeah. But they, Einstein's not allowed to have anything to do with this. Okay, so uh, the atomic bomb that the Manhattan Project was trying to make and then eventually did make were fission bombs. Yeah. So now I'm going to talk about physics. Just, like, straight-up physics I'm for a little excited. bit. You know, I need to, like... It was a refresher? Yeah, I need that in my life, I think. I, well, what, what is your physics background? I took physics in high school, and I took a single physics class in college, and then didn't take the second semester because I took computer science instead. I never took physics in high school, and then second semester senior year took physics of college yes yeah and cried a lot because i didn't well second semester senior year everybody was kind of slacking yeah and so i just didn't dedicate the amount of time and physics is not the type of thing that the night or two before your exam you Uh, should start trying to understand no there's a lot of me trying to like look at my hand because there's that thumbs up thumbs down chirality thing that that i never got I definitely did. I remember crying and doing this. So I think it was for physics as well. Yeah. Well, there's like the mechanics physics, which is Mm -hmm. like gravity. Yeah. F equals MA Uh type like forces mass times acceleration. And then there's the electromagnetic physics, right? And And then there's the the nuclear physics. (laughs) And that's the stuff that you don't learn in college. <laughs> okay. Or in general college. I guess. Yes. Okay, so so an atom <laughs> we're gonna go no way yeah. way back. Nice. It's composed of protons, right, that are positively charged. And neutrons so there's positive uh, but there's protons and neutrons in the nucleus. Yeah. Protons are positively charged. Neutrons are not charged. And then there's generally an equal number of electrons, which are negatively yeah. charged, that are in orbit around this nucleus. And that's yes. an atom. Okay, now each element, for the most part, has a natural number that corresponds to that element. So, for instance, like carbon is atomic num- element number six and has six neutrons, six protons, and six electrons. But you can also get isotopes that are variants of that particular ke- chemical element that differ in their neutron number, right? Right. So, like in biology we use isotopes to do like radiocarbon dating and to look at like food web structure and stuff like that because there are some natural isotopes that have carbon 13 has six protons and seven neutrons and then carbon 14 has six protons and eight neutrons yes and carbon 14 is radioactive so kind of the more i believe that the more neutrons that you have above the number of protons and electrons, Mm -hmm. kind of the less stable it is. Yeah. In general. That sounds right. Now, uranium or plutonium are the elements that are generally used in both nuclear power and were the elements used in making the two atomic bombs. Now, how this works is that you can bombard uranium or plutonium with neutrons, causing them to form isotopes that have more neutrons than they would naturally have. Oh, just the particle accelerator. The particle accelerator, yes. So you just bombard these atoms with extra neutrons so they get higher numbers of neutrons. So uranium-235 has 92 protons and 142 neutrons. Right. 
and plutonium-239 has 94 protons and 145 neutrons. So they both have a lot more neutrons. Nuclear fusion bombs occur when these isotopes, uranium-235 and plutonium-239, primarily split their nuclei on impact with another particle. Wow. And this creates an insane amount of energy and releases... Uh, and and the release of these excess <laughs> neutrons. <laughs> so you just bombard them with a bunch of neutrons, yeah. and then there's some type of collision, and then this kind of unstable atom breaks apart, and you get a lot of energy, and you get a lot of neutrons being pushed yeah. out into the world. And these neutrons can then in turn bombard other nuclei of uranium or plutonium and cause these nuclei to split, causing a chain reaction. So you just keep getting nuclei to split because the neutrons that are being like forced out by a split hits another uranium-235 and splits that. I so you see. get this so like chain like reaction. Bomb yeah. is, is a lot of these things near each other. Yes. Yeah. So because the products of nuclear fission are also... Yes, okay, I said that. You got it, girl. (laughs) Doing great. Okay, so these products... So once there's nuclear fission and these uranium or plutonium split into two different atoms, these products then rapidly undergo beta decay. And what beta decay is, is a type of radioactive decay where either an electron is emitted from the atom, which turns a neutron into a proton... OMG. So, yeah. <laughs> or like when a mind's been blown up. <laughs> yeah, when a positron, which I'm not going to talk about at all, yeah, is emitted, it tur- you can imagine it's positive. Yeah, uh-huh. So if you emit this positive uh, positron, mm-hmm. it turns a proton into a neutron. Okay. Yeah. So this happens because it makes the atoms more stable. So beta decay, they just kind of keep emitting things until you get a more yeah. stable atom. <sighs> It's kind of crazy that all that energy needs to be released in such a crazy amount yes. to go back to stability. Yes. Yeah. You just keep bump- making it more chaotic. You uh-huh. like try to enclose as much chaos as you can. Until it all just like... Yeah. Yeah. Explodes. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay. So that was your physics lesson. Yeah. That's um, a little physics sidebar. <laughs> yes. So Wu joined the Manhattan Project. Yeah. And she worked at the Substitute Aloes Materials Lab at Columbia University, and she focused on radiation detectors, so detecting the radiation, I'm guessing, that were coming off of uranium and plutonium and stuff like that, and also worked on enriching uranium. And that just means separating the isotopes that naturally occur in uranium to only get uranium-235, which is the ones that you use for fission. Now, at the end of the war... Wu became an associate research professor at Columbia, where she would remain for the rest of her life. So, gets done with the Manhattan Project, and then stays at Columbia. And part of the reason... We, like, keep coming back to Columbia. It's, like, just a a, research hub of that time, I guess, the early 1900s. Anyway. And I I need to look this up, and I don't know how many universities were friendly to women or had women. Yeah. Though, Colombian... But, I mean, like, all the Ivy Leagues existed at that point, right? Like, Harvard, Yale, 
Um, I think so. Cornell. I mean, okay, Barbara McClintock was at Cornell, mm-hmm. and they seem friendly to yeah. her. But it is a question, like, was Columbia just more friendly to women at that time? Yeah, I And don't that's know. why. But. Yeah, we can look that up yeah. later, I guess. Yeah. But I, I do think it's funny. So when the Ivy Leagues were forming, they asked Rutgers, like, do you want to be part of this? <laughs> and they said no, because they didn't think it was going to go anywhere. Oh. <laughs> Rutgers. That's really... Oh, poor Rutgers. I know, I know. <laughs> but then, okay, but Columbia also has an associated women's college, Barnard. Yes. And that was existing at this point in time or not? I think so. I was under the impression that women were not allowed at Columbia until nineteen, the 1980s. I don't know that why I thought that. undergrad. It could maybe. be undergrad yeah. and maybe PhD. D and like professors was I should look was this all up. at Columbia Corrections Corner for next week. Yeah. Okay. You mean oops? Oops. Uh, closet? Oops. Oops. <laughs> oops. Oops. Collection. Collection. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oops. Shell. So, okay. So part of the reason she didn't return home or go back to China was that after the war, she did try to visit her family in China. But this was disrupted by the Chinese Civil War after World War II and the birth of her son. And then once the communists came to power in China, her father urged Wu not to return to China because it was unsafe. And since her Chinese passport was issued by the previous government, she really couldn't travel anywhere. So she decided to then become a U.S. citizen because, yeah, it was making her life really difficult to kind of be in between these two worlds. Now, at Columbia, she plunged herself into investigating beta decay. It was all beta decay, all the time. And she would be known for beta decay and her eloquent experiments in beta decay. And she was, oh, I didn't mention this, but she is known as the first lady of physics. Oh, yeah, that's awesome. And in 1934, Enrico Fermi had published his theory of, you know, Enrico I Fermi? know that name. You got excited. He's got a rule or something, no? Fermi's theorem? Something like that. Yeah, yeah. This could be it. I probably... <laughs> Fermi's theorem of beta decay? I don't know, but I, know, <laughs> I feel like we learned about him in okay. class. Well, Fermi had published his theory of beta decay, but the results of the first experiment to test this theory were at odds with the theory. So oh. then they were like, oh, is the theory wrong? Did we do the experiment wrong? Yeah. And Wu was able to improve the methodology of the previous experiment and to show that, yes, the results were consistent with Fermi's theorem of beta decay. So she was the first experimental evidence of this big theory about beta decay. And then in 1956, while she's at Columbia, theoretical physicists Sung Dao Li and Chen Ning Yang met with Wu because they had begun to question a... Law of Elementary Particle Physics. So, at the time, it was as agreed upon as, like, the law of gravity. Kind of as well-respected. And this was the law of conservation of parity. Parity? Parity. P-A-R-I-T-Y, not P-A-R-O-D-Y. Oh. <laughs> I was like, whoa! So they got into, like, <laughs> They got comedy. into some, like... Yeah. Gotta maintain the comedy. Yeah. Um, the show, it's kind of like the show must go on. Yeah, right. Yeah. 
So this law is essentially saying that if we take the mere image of a system or some interaction of particles, the mirror image should behave the same way as it normally would. So if you had, I don't know, like some, a ball and you let go of it in this world, it drops because of gravity. It goes towards the ground. It's pulled towards it. Yeah. And if you would look at in like a mirror world, whatever that means, and you have a ball in this mirror world, it should also drop. The same effect should happen both in a mirror world as this world. So it kind of okay. is related to left and right. Yeah. Is it consistent? At the time, parity was a be- yeah, bedrock law of physics based on mathematical proofs. It was as well accepted as the laws of yeah, so it was as well accepted as the laws of gravity. And the law of conservation of parity held up for electromagnetism, gravity, and strong interactions between particles. Those had all been tested and proven that they followed the law of Conservation of parity. How do you test that if you don't have a mirror world? For these other things? I don't know. I can kind of tell you what they did for... Yeah. That's like... This is where physics breaks down for me. Yep. 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 (laughs) I just try to imagine what these people are even thinking, and it's just like, whoa. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, for some things, you can imagine what it would be like if it was the mirror image. Yeah. And would the mirror image of something act the same way? Yeah, right. Um, but yeah, I'm not quite sure how they did the other experiments. Yeah, I guess they don't have to have a mirror world. Yeah, they can. They, they have like proxies. Ways. Right, yeah. yeah, okay. But it was not tested for weak interactions associated with nuclear reactions such as beta decay. Yeah. So they had not tested the law of parity for Ooh. beta decay. So... Lee and Yang came to Wu and were like, we don't trust that this holds for weak interactions. They did like a big meta-analysis type. They looked at a bunch of literature and they had kind of set up theoretically what kind of experiment that you could do. And Wu was renowned for her like really elegant experiments looking at beta decay. Yeah. And so they came to her and she agreed to test this theory of parity for weak interactions And she was supposed to go to China that week. It was like Christmas week. And she was supposed to go to China with her husband on a boat. And she was just like, sorry, honey. (laughs) Have fun in China. Oh, my God. She got so into it. She she didn't want anybody to figure it out before. Wow. Because she realized how important it was. And so she... And she... In Colombia, they didn't have the resources to do this. Oh. As you'll hear. Because they needed, like, crazy cold temperatures. And I think they needed to be, like, underground by, like, 100 feet. Oh, my God. Um, But so she went down to Washington, D.C. to the National Bureaus of Standards to do this experiment. And in this experiment, Wu and colleagues used cobalt-60. It's blue. Maybe. Cobalt's blue, right? I don't know if cobalt-60 is blue. I don't know. Okay. I'm I'm just thinking of, like, a car. Isn't there, like, a cobalt... Oh, maybe their cobalt blue is a car color. Mm, probably. Um, <laughs> anyway, anyway. converged on something real. <laughs> they use cobalt sixty, so that's a radioactive isotope that has twenty four protons and then thirty three neutrons. So it's slight, it's unstable because it has more neutrons than protons. And so they 
used cobalt 60 with magnetic fields at super low temperatures at like 1.2 Kelvin, which is like negative 300 and yeah. something degrees Fahrenheit, uh, right? Or Celsius, right? Wait, what? It was one Kelvin. Yeah, it was like one Kelvin. What's the coldest temperature? Like Zero Kelvin. Okay. Yeah. So it was like almost absolute yeah. temperature. And so the thing that's cool about cobalt-60 is that the nuclei of cobalt-60 have an internal spin and that it naturally undergoes beta decay. Stay with me. So they used magnetic fields to orient all the cobalt nuclei. So they're all spinning the same way. And then counted how many electrons were emitted up and how many electrons were emitted down during beta decay. So if parity is conserved, the same number of electrons should go towards the north and south poles. Yeah. So 50% should oh, go up okay. and 50% should go down. So they shouldn't prefer one side over the other. Gotcha. But they found that most of the electrons favor decay towards the south pole, showing that the parity was violated for weak interactions. Wow. I think it was 60% chose south pole to 40% chose north North Pole, which might not seem like a lot, but that's a significant... Yeah. If you're thinking it's 50-50 and you probably... Your sample size is probably huge because it's electrons. Yeah. That's a very stark difference. reject that hypothesis that it's the same. Yeah. That it's equal proportions. And so this finally solved the Ozma problem, which I'm not going to get into specifically how you would teach the alien what is left and right, but because... You could figure out what side of a magnet is north and what side of a magnet is south. You could eventually figure out what is left and what is right. Do you want me to go? I know. Okay. No. <laughs> <laughs> but trust me, you can. Yeah. Nice. So there's an explicit way to tell an alien what left and right mean in terms uh, of the non-parity of weak particle interactions. So, so you would just show them a magnet. So they would have to do this experiment. So essentially, okay, let me... Let so me, you have to teach aliens about beta decay. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, no. It's more complicated. Yes. <laughs> so you would have to get them to do this exact experiment. And then whichever way more yeah, electrons yeah. went, that would be the south pole. Okay. And then you could align a needle yeah. and figure out what end is south and what end is north by aligning it to your magnet. So this is... And then you could... Wait, no, I'm not done. <laughs> Assuming a, an alien can even think. Yes, yes. Yeah. There's a lot of assumptions here we're not going to get into. Yeah. But then you take a string. Right. And you put a string from you... Oh, uh, 90, just straight out from your heart. And then you put that needle that you know what has a, what north side and what the south side is. And you put that... You know what? Oh, and there has to no, be no. <laughs> electrical charge going from you t- through the string At outwards. At this point, I would just go, <laughs> I don't need a pool. <laughs> I'll build my own damn pool. <laughs> and then I think the north side, the needle should spin on that string that has electrical charge. You lost me. You can't explain it to another human being. You can't explain it to an alien. Just kidding. No, I was being deliberately <laughs> obtuse. Anyways, the north side of the needle, I think, should be on your left side. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, um, Wow. Oh, my 
guys, what a crazy thought problem that only a physicist could come up with and uh, understand. Yeah, I, if anyone has followed me, you've done so good. No, you've I done a great job. Um, that's awesome. Okay, <laughs> so both Lee and Yang, so the two yeah. um, theoretical physicists who came to Wu asking for her help in doing these experiments, received the Nobel Prize in physics for this work, oh, even man. though Wu had not had been the one to do the experiments to confirm their theoretical prediction, and she did not get in on that Nobel Prize. That is fucked up. Oh yeah. my god. Did they ever give her a Nobel nope. Prize? Like, she's never had a Nobel human- Prize. I guess they can't give it to you when you're dead. Yeah. That's like the Rosalind Franklin thing. Like, she sure. couldn't get a Nobel mm. Prize for the discovery of DNA because she died. Yeah, she died super young, yeah. They got the Nobel Prize. Mm. Uh, anyway. Yeah. That's okay. fucked up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, for sure. So... These results disprove the law of conservation of parity. So, the like, think about an experiment that was like, nope, not gra- gravity has, has uh, gravity doesn't always work. You'd be like, what? Yeah. <laughs> so it rocked uh, the physics community, as you yeah. might expect. And several researchers quickly tried to reproduce Wu's results and succeeded. So, okay, the evidence even after right. like, the next set of experiments showed that her results were correct. Cool. Um, yeah. And so, although, so this experiment on parody is called the Wu experiment. Woo woo! Woo! And it's what she's known for, but she also made significant contributions to science after this. She experimentally confirmed results applicable to the Einstein Podolsky Rosen paradox, which I'm not going to get into because I didn't look it up. It's some theoretical... I somehow, like, was reading about this really? earlier today. Why? <laughs> <laughs> Probably in researching this. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So, she did that. She also did research helping to understand the molecular basics for defer- uh, defer- deformation of hemoglobin that wow. causes sickle cell anemia. Yeah. And I couldn't find anything to explain, like, what she did. Yeah. Like, so it I seems guess... like kind of a strange outlier of her general research on beta decay was, like, here's how hemoglobin's shaped. Yeah, I'm sure someone in the bio field, like, reached out to mm-hmm. her for help in determining how, like, mutations in that gene yeah. influence the shape of those um, red blood cells. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. And her book, Beta Decay, remains the standing reference on low energy emissions of electrons by decaying wow. atoms. So she is still the predominant the first knowledge. Lady. Yeah, first lady of physics. So, due to bad relations between China and the United States, she was not able to return to China until 1965, where she went to Hong Kong. I'm guessing that was probably a little easier, maybe at the time, because yeah, it was owned possibly. by the British. Yeah. Um, and then again, she came back to the rest of China in 1973 after relations had gotten a little bit better. But by that time, her older brother, her father, her mother, and her uncle had all died. That's so And, su- and she probably had never seen them since she left. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And she hadn't, I think she had not, she saw her uncle and one of her brothers when she went to Hong Kong. Oh, okay. Like five years before. 
But yeah, and, and even the tombs of her parents were destroyed because there had been that whole war and yeah. there had been a lot of um, turmoil. And so later in life, she became more outspoken and she protested against the Chinese government's treatment of Taiwanese journalists and scientists, Great. against gender discrimination, and against the crackdown in China after the Tiananmen Square massacre of 1989. In a symposium at MIT in 1964, she said, I wonder whether the tiny atoms and nuclei or the mathematical symbols or the DNA molecules have any preference for either masculine or feminine treatment. Um, Just saying, she was very supportive of females in the workplace and was against gender barriers and discrimination. And so she was just saying, I don't think the science cares if it's a woman doing it or a man doing it. That's so cool. And when men would refer to her as Professor Wan, which is her husband... (laughs) <laughs> she would correct them instantly and ask them to refer to her as Professor Wu. Good. And Wu retired in 1981 and died in 1997 at the age of 84. Wow. Oh my gosh. And she was the first woman, okay, so here's Acclimates, first woman with an honorary doctorate from Princeton University. She was elected to the National Academy of Sciences in 1958, the Royal Society of Edinburgh in 1969 and the American Academy of Arts and Sciences in 1972. Nice. In 1973, she was chosen as the first woman to head the American Physical Society, which I'm guessing is physics. Yeah. Yeah. And then she won the National Medal of Science in 1975. Wow. Oh, my God. So that is Chen Wu. That's so cool. The, the first lady of physics. You did a great job explaining. <laughs> Thank you. I tried so hard. I don't think that you dishonored her memory. Oh, thank you. All right. Yeah. Awesome. I'm so exhausted. Sigh of relief. Yeah, I decided to do this for her last night, and then I was just like, I'm so overwhelmed. I don't know anything. Honestly, like... A lot of these women just have so many, like, cool things they did their whole life that it's hard to decide what to include or not. Yeah. There were some things I was like, I can't... It was hard enough to, like, explain one thing that she did. <laughs> like, I can't... I can't explain more. Yeah. And it's hard to explain, like, how they fit into the science of their time mm-hmm. without explaining, like, what they did a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Break yeah. time. Break time, please. Work, 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 work. So, <laughs> so this is um, our next segment, the women who work. So shout outs to, shout out to current women in science doing cool things. Yes. Yeah. We probably have a phrase, like a tagline for this and I forget it. It's all good. Okay. So shout out number one goes to um, a group of women who study, who, uh, published a paper this week in Current Biology. Uh, All the authors on the paper are four women. Nice. Yeah, so that's cool. (laughs) In, um, that used to be called, no, never mind. (laughs) Four women on a paper used to be illegal. (laughs) Well, that's like homes in New York State. Like, you can't have more than five women living in the same home. Yeah. Still, it's insane. Really? Yeah. Uh, you, uh, what if there's men in there, too? I think that's okay. Okay. Just but at University of Rochester, there couldn't be sorority houses. Because they're brothels, then? Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that fucked up? Okay. Yeah. 
Anyway, okay. These they should not up. let five men live together because it's disgusting. Yeah, I right? feel like that it's a health, public health hazard. Yeah, just don't let large groups of people live together. That's how you get cults. Yes. Anyway, these women are not in a cult as far as I know. <laughs> or a brothel. <laughs> but, um, so they completed a study, an animal behavior study. Cool. And finding... They found that horses remember the facial expressions of people they've seen before. Like, the facial, like, the expressions? Yeah. Or the faces? Both. Okay. So they can not They know when I'm very upset. Yeah. They can not only recognize that they've seen a person before, but they can recognize if that person was angry or not. And hmm. I think, like, that's only been shown in dogs. Yeah. And, like, I know dogs can read human emotions a little bit. And I think, um, I think crows can as well. What do you, <laughs> have you seen the Sia music video where she puts tape on her face to, like, distort it? No. Is that, I'm a <laughs> No. <laughs> It's like a, it's a, it's an early video before she... No. But, like, she, like, tapes her nose up, so she looks, has, like, a hog nose, and, like, her eyebrows up, and I wonder, um, how much you could tape your face before a horse (laughs) just, like, loses it. Before you're just unrecognizable? No, actually. They didn't do this? No. (laughs) Here's what they did. Okay, okay, so the women in the study, um, it was co-led by two professors, Karen McComb and Leanne Proops in England, and two other women were on the study, Kate Grounds and Amy Victoria Smith. Um, and they took domestic horses and presented them with a photograph of an angry or happy human face. And several hours later, they would have those people in the photograph stand in front of um, the horse and exhibit a neutral expression. <laughs> it's okay. so creepy, right? It's like a Twilight Zone yeah. episode or something. I'm sure the horses are like, will this per- <laughs> human kill me? And like, okay, so they measured <laughs> the looking behaviors of the horses, like where they were looking. And like look for the exits. <laughs> It's like, GTFO. Get out of here. Um, They measured displacement and stress behaviors and approach avoidance and heart rate measures were recorded to evaluate the horse response. Okay. And so, like, even though the humans were showing a neutral state, which is really creepy, (laughs) (laughs) kind of serial killery, during the live meeting... Uh-huh. The horse's gaze direction revealed that it, that they would perceive a person more negatively if they had previously seen them looking angry in the photograph. Oh, interesting. And, like, they were presenting the horses with the same person. Mm-hmm. And so I think they also measured, like, whether or not they were responding to the same person only or to different people making yeah. a certain expression. And they would only respond to the same person making... Okay. That had made the mad expression. So they remembered, like, that particular person's face making 
a particular expression. That's pretty... I, I wonder how, like, your previous experience goes into that. Because, yeah. like, if you got... I guess I'm wondering, can they, without having previous experience, is just the facial expression of humans, like, the angry expression... Is that something that horses recognize without having interactions with humans? Or is it something that, mm. based on their previous interactions with humans, they then attribute to anger? Yeah. You like, know what I'm saying? Like, have learned that this face is associated with a particular... Behavior? Um, like, like, smacking or yeah, not getting carrots? Yeah, that's a good question. Because when, when horses are angry, I feel like yeah. they don't look at all like... I don't know what they look I like, I guess I don't know if these were trained horses yeah. or just in a barn and had never been exposed to, like, riding or yeah. anything. I'm not sure if they yeah. were work horses, but... That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So Also you know, creepy. <laughs> super creepy. The pictures are really creepy. <laughs> smile. Like, they're so over-exaggerated. Uh-huh. Smile and frown. <laughs> Um, that was me smiling. But really it is sort there. of like domestic and I think we're learning more and more that domesticated animals have kind of learned mm-hmm. how to interact with us. Yeah. Like we think we interact with them and train them, but mm-hmm. they can also kind of read us, which is nuts. So. Yeah. Well, yeah, it would also be interesting to see if domesticated animals, like how much of that is a learned response and how yeah. much of that is it's genetic. Neat. Yeah. Yeah. I guess they could test um, ponies or something. Your babies. Oh, I want to work with ponies. <laughs> Just stand in front of yeah. them and stare at them. <laughs> oh, does this scare you, pony? <laughs> Are you uncomfortable? <laughs> okay, so that's shout out number one to those ladies, Woo-hoo! Karen McComb, Leanne Proops, and the rest. <laughs> And then, um, okay, shout-out number two goes to Sue Desmond Hellman, who has an MD and a master's in public health. Nice. And she is the 2018 recipient of the Association for Women in Science Pinnacle Award, which is, like, their top award. Nice. Which recognizes her contributions in STEM as a scientist, physician, philanthropist, and mentor. Okay. So she is right now the CEO of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. I've heard of that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Which is basically just trying to solve all the world's problems. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But she was trained as an oncologist, and she spent 14 years at Genentech, which is a biotech company. Is oncology bone? Oncology is cancer. Yep, yep, yep. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, I don't know what bone is it's not oncology i know what bone is but i don't know what bone studies are (laughs) thank you yes we can keep that nope it's in we're trying to honor this great woman (laughs) okay she uh yeah okay she's she worked at genentech a biotech company for 14 years developing a number of breakthrough medicines, including two of the first gene-targeted therapies for cancer. Oh, very cool. And... Is gene-targeted therapy, like, specific to each individual? Is that what that means? I don't know. It doesn't do these, like, blanket treatments. It 
would I'm be. I'm not sure yeah. if that means personalized therapy. Okay, yeah, that's what I was. If it means that's... like a DNA therapy, like it somehow changes your DNA or targets like gene expression. Gotcha. Or yeah. I don't know what that okay. means. And I didn't look it up. That's cool. It's more targeted. <laughs> but she did that, and it was pretty revolutionary. Nice. <laughs> she was um, chancellor for. She was the first female chancellor for the University of California at San Francisco. What's a chancellor? Um, they basically run the university, sort of. Mm-hmm. Except, I guess, so does the president. They're trying to make Tex- Rex Tillerson the next chancellor of the uh. UT system. <laughs> Ousted Secretary of State Rex Tillerson. Wait, is he not Secretary of State? No! Where have you been? In Panama. <laughs> and then I already have a new secretary. Who is that? I think it's... Oh, wait, no. I was going to say Mike Pompeo, but he's the CIA director. I gotta look this up. This is breaking news. Who's got a new secretary of state? Um, no. Right. <laughs> has been out four months, but not that many months, I guess. I knew there was a... Yeah, com- Mike Pompeo is the new secretary you of state. You are so good. He was, when was he by? In March. Oh, two days after I left and totally oh, went incommunicado. Okay. Oh, wow. That was actually faster than I realized. In two months. Yeah. So that was it's, last month. Because it's still April. No, it's May 1st. What? <laughs> Where am I? You um, don't know if it's Monday or Tuesday. Like, no. <laughs> oh, you're so right. Anyway. Sue Desmond Hellman, <laughs> who was the chancellor of UCSF and is now the CEO of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation yes. career. And this is just another from the Association of Women in Science. I don't think she's going to enjoy what we've said. And now we have <laughs> shouted out to her. Uh, we love you, Sue. Yeah, good job, Sue. So trivia, the section where you ask me a trivia and we do answer last week. Yes. Got some questions that I gotta ask and Last week's question was. Remember, it was like two pages. Okay, but essentially, the Royal Society of London, founded in 1660, <laughs> the question was in what year was the first woman nominated to become a fellow to the Royal Society in London? Yes. Who was she, and why did the society deny her the fellowship? Drum roll, please. 1902. So almost 250 years after the society was founded, a woman was nominated. I thought you were going to say 250 years ago. <laughs> 250 years ago in 2002. What year is it? Uh, okay, 1902. Okay, yes. Beginning of the 20th century. Yes. The woman. <laughs> physicist Hertha Ayrton. Hmm. A physicist. I just, <laughs> yes. I wrote physicist Hertha Ayrton, a physicist. So just doubling down on yeah. that. It's a lot of physics this week. Okay, I like she it. was a physicist and mathematician that studied electrical arcs, which is like lightning is an electrical arc. Okay. I'm not going to get into details. Yeah. 
And she also studied ripples and sand and water, which is awesome. I understand that. Okay. Um, she was nominated by a guy, John Perry, who was an electrical engineer and had been a professor in England and collaborated with her husband and her... Okay. So he nominated her for the Royal Society Fellowship. Okay. Do we know why... Any guesses why the Royal Society would not allow her to be a fellow? She, besides her being a fella? Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's a fella is still a male. <laughs> no, I know. There's no equivalent. I feel like we're getting no, into no, this is something that sounds... Fellatio? Yes. Okay. Because she's it's a... not because of fellatio. <laughs> <laughs> Um, they weren't like, please fillet us, and she would not, <laughs> and then they wouldn't let her in. Yeah, that's, that's modern times. Yeah, right. I don't know. Okay, here is what the society said in her rejection letter. Okay. We are of opinion that married women are not eligible as fellows of the Royal Society. Whether the charters admit of the election of unmarried women appears to us to be very doubtful. So basically, it was that she was a woman, but they said because she was married, she wasn't allowed. But they probably, but it was doubtful they'd take her if she was unmarried? Yeah, right. Okay. But the reason why she wasn't, so married women in England at that time weren't regarded as persons in eyes of the law. Cool. Right. So as such, they could not be fellows yeah. of a society incorporated I mean, by a charter. <laughs> that almost makes insane. sense. It's so insane. Um, yeah, a woman, if elected, would become disqualified by marriage. Which makes just saying. So you're qualified, and then you're like, I love somebody. And it's now also I... like, just say. That you don't just want women? change the rule. Yeah. Like, Either just change the rule, or. Like, it, it's not actually about marriage, it doesn't seem like. Yeah. Seems like all their other fellows were married. Um, okay. So, and, like, her nomination, I think, had been signed by multiple men. Like, and she was a good scientist. Yeah. Anyway. Really crazy. Um. Maybe we'll have to do her. Yeah, actually, she's really interesting, yeah. too. And she also had a name change, like Barbara McClintock. What was her? I don't remember. Eleanor? Uh, something yeah, sexier Eleanor than Mason. Barbara. Yeah, Eleanor. Too <laughs> feminine. Too feminine. <laughs> That's so... Deciding whether or not your child <laughs> is feminine enough for a name is so scarring and awful. Yeah. Even. Okay. But they, like... They sent this rejection to everyone that had signed her letter of nomination in a way to be like, you better not ever nominate a woman again. And it, like, discouraged other fellows from nominating people, for, from nominating women for a long time. That sucks. So my question for next week... Okay. ...is a follow-up. Yeah! Uh, Two-parter. Yeah, what year did the first woman receive a fellowship for the Royal Society, and for what? And I'll give you a hint, it was actually two women. 1962. Decent guess. The women were... And we'll end there. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for saving me. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, I think that's it. <laughs> All right. Uh, final comments? 
please rate us on iTunes so that people can find us. Follow us on Twitter at Ecology Gremlin, G-R-E-M-L-Y-N. And uh, Emma Dietrich 89. Intro and outro music was done by Artichoke, and the song is called Mary Annie. And then, how'd you like stand apples? Bye! <laughs> Circa 1820, she ran a fossil store. She put the bones together for the